Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. All right, welcome to our Monday show. We often call it the Scrambler. We've been scrambling around to tell you a story today that's it's a diff- it's actually one of those stories that's so complicated it was almost designed not to be told. Like if you make something complicated enough, no one will ever tell the story, which would probably be what a lot of people connected to this story would prefer. So, but we're going to do our best anyway. Let me tell you who's with us today. Steve Collins is in studio with me. Until recently, he was a reporter for the, new, for the Bristol Press, where he covered government and politics and continues to serve as president of Youth Journalism International. He kind of resigned publicly from the Bristol Press uh, over a matter of principle. We'll be telling you about that, uh, what that principle was. Also with us here in the first segment, uh, Jay Rosen teaches journalism at NYU and writes the blog Press Think. A little later on, we'll talk to Michael Green. Uh, he is an associate professor of history at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. He's a specialist in the history of Nevada and the history of Las Vegas. So, because Las Vegas is a big part of this story. What story? All right, I am going to try to, to tell you this story in about like two minutes and 10 seconds or something. Uh, and it's, uh, we'll see how I do anyway. Okay, I have to get myself into a state of kind of zen stillness. Um, all right, so um, earlier this month, the Las Vegas Review Journal, which is the biggest newspaper in Nevada, uh, was sold for the second time this year. What made this one different was that the buyer was anonymous. In other words, the buyer was, it was not possible to know who was buying the paper. It was done by um, an LLC based in Delaware, come for the shadowy corporate ent- entities, stay for the azaleas. Uh, and so nobody knew. The only name associated with the sale was a guy named Michael Schroeder. Michael Schroeder uh, was listed as the manager and the, on the filing papers in Delaware, and he was the name and face of the new owners, as far as anybody at the Las Vegas Review-Journal could tell. Um, so that's a little odd. And so the, uh, the newspaper which started kind of doing its own journalistic investigation of who owned it. And over the course of a week, it basically came out that the new owner owner or owners uh, were Sheldon Adelson and his family. Sheldon Adelson is by Forbes 400's reckoning the 15th wealthiest man in America. He's got a net worth of about $25 billion. He's a major donor to the Republican Party and to Republican causes. He's also kind of a big player over in Israel where he's funded a free daily newspaper. So far, so complicated, uh, but it got a lot more complicated. Now, a couple of other things were going on. One of them was that around the, the, the time the sale was probably being negotiated, this story emerged uh, that, w- that needed to be covered or was being assigned to reporters at the Las Vegas Review-Journal, but it didn't seem to originate in the newsroom. They wanted a story about um, three judges. They wanted reporters to essentially follow three judges around or uh, check and make sure whether they got to work on time and what they did and how they did their jobs. And, but this story didn't come from the traditional editors uh, of the paper. Anyway, uh, three reporters were assigned to three judges. One of them was Elizabeth Gonzalez. We'll get to her in a second. Uh, this is going to take more than two minutes and 10 seconds. Uh, so one of them was Elizabeth Gonzalez. We'll get to her in a couple of seconds. Uh, but basically, they, um, <clears throat> they wrote about 15,000 words that were never used by the paper. Um, however, another story did come out that story came out not in the Las Vegas Review-Journal, but in, of all places, the New Britain Herald and the Bristol Press, 
which are at which the CEO, owner, etc., uh, editor, publisher is Michael Schroeder, that guy who was the one and only face of the new owners of the Las Vegas Review Journal until, in fact, it was discovered that, in fact, it was Sheldon Adelson and the Adelson family. All right, I'm about to tie this whole thing together as best as I can. So um, what was interesting about the story was that the story that appeared in the New Britain Herald and Bristol Press was did involve one of the judges that, in fact, the Las Vegas paper had been asked to sort of fly spec. Um, and, and that judge was Elizabeth Gonzalez. Elizabeth Gonzalez is a judge sitting in a trial, a wrongful termination trial, uh, that involves uh, Sheldon Adelson's company, which is a multinational resort and casino company called Las Vegas Sands. The, the, the trial involves the termination of an executive in the Macau arm of Adelson's uh, company, and he's claiming he was wrongfully terminated, and that one of the things that he was really trying to do was to get the Macau arm of Adelson's company um, separate or, or out of its associations or, or overlaps with Chinese organized uh, crime gangs, which are known, known as Triads. So how complicated is that? So somehow or other, the New Britain Herald and the Bristol Press wound up publishing this story. It was a 2,000, almost 2,000-word story. That's long for newspapers. Uh, about business courts. About a quarter of it did deal with this Elizabeth Gonzalez, this Las Vegas or Nevada-based judge. Like, who, who would care about that? Who reads the New Britain Herald and Bristol Press? Um, and this is the last part. I think I'm at the last part. The story ran under a byline that had not been seen very much in the Bristol Press or the New Britain Herald. Edward Clarkin. Nobody seemed to know Edward Clarkin. There was no such person walking around the building. It was pretty clearly a false byline, um, which I'm now prepared to say without fear of refutation. Uh, is a false byline uh, for Michael Schroeder, the publisher and editor of the New Britain Press and uh, the New Britain Herald and the Bristol Press, and the self-same person who had been kind of the representative of the Adelson's uh, interest. All right, that took four minutes. <laughs> that was a lot longer than I wanted to do. But I think I kind of covered it all. Uh, I want to say, first of all, that, so as I mentioned before, uh, Steve Collins is here in studio with me. He resigned in protest over this. We'll get to that in just a second. But first we're going to go to Jay Rosen uh, from NYU and from PressThink. So, um, Jay, as I've just revealed, this story is really confusing. It's hard to follow. It has a lot of moving parts. There are parts that I was not able to summarize in my four-minute presentation uh, what are the parts that bother you the most? What are the what are the things that trouble you? Well, I think you did a pretty good job, Colin. <laughs> uh, the parts that trouble me the most is first the idea that, um, as Michael Schroeder said when he was introduced to the Las Vegas Review Journal newsroom staff, that the people who work there shouldn't worry about who owns them, which is what he told them. They should just go and do their jobs and not even concern themselves with who had just purchased their paper, suggests a kind of opacity that's just not very good for journalism. So that was one thing. The placement of this article in a Connecticut newspaper that is primarily about business in Las Vegas is just completely bizarre, and we still don't know why uh, this article appeared and what the machinations behind it were. A third thing that you didn't mention is the role of Gatehouse Media, which is the prior owner of the Las Vegas Review Journal, sold the paper at an inflated price estimated to be perhaps three times or almost three times what it is worth in market value. 
And it appears, although we don't know yet, that Gatehouse Media was sort of cooperating in this story, in this in this strange series of events, before it had sold the newspaper to the Adelson family. So what was Gatehouse doing? Why was it doing it? Why was it ordering up from afar investigations at its newspapers that touched on this judge and and uh, and other other strange things that are coming from from far away and landing on the journalists in Las Vegas. So that's that's kind of important. And then just the whole idea that a newspaper publisher can say to colleagues in the press, oh, "I don't know anything about this," uh, and kind of stonewall about basic questions like who is Edward Clarkin um, is kind of absurd it's it's hilarious in its way but it's also very disturbing so so there's a, those are some of the elements of it that you that you left out right and there's been quite a bit of stonewalling about this in general during the week or so between the time the sale was announced and the time that various uh, journalists including the ones at the paper in Las Vegas figured out who the new owner was Sheldon Adelson was asked point blank on CNN by Brian Stelter whether he was the new owner or, and he said I he said he had no personal interest uh, in the company uh, by which I mean I suppose you could sort of parse that and and it's sort of like you know what is your definition of is or personal interest or, or whatever this is a shell company that does seem to involve his family members his son-in-law was kind of the point man on it but i mean so you have the unusual situation of a newspaper being bought bought by god knows who and then you have the even more unusual uh situation of the person who really does it turns out for all intents and purposes own the newspaper now basically saying he doesn't uh mm-hmm. prior to admitting that he does mm-hmm. so all of this is um is confusing. And Jay, you may have your own questions that you want to ask Steve Collins here, but Steve, I'm going to begin with one, which is, okay, so, well, actually, we should say something about Michael Schroeder and the Bristol Press and the New Britain Herald. Um, Some years ago, is it 2009? Is that when he took over? 2009. 2009. So the Bristol, uh, I mean, these two newspapers were, let's be fair, kind of on life support at that moment. That's true. We were in, um, we the previous owner said they were going to close the papers. We were fighting to find a buyer to find some way to stay alive. And Michael Schroeder appeared and purchased them and came in promising that he was going to turn things around and, you know, make us proud. What did you know about Michael Schroeder? Like when people ask you, well, who's this new guy who just bought, bought your papers? Um, what did you guys know about him? Well, we didn't know a lot. We knew he had been um, an editor with, or the editor at Boston Now, which was a, a, a uh, commuting paper in Boston that had gotten under in 2008 and that he had worked for Newsday for a long time and he seemed to have a you know a reasonable background in journalism so we weren't you know we hoped for the best to the best of your knowledge did I mean did he buy these papers with his money or do you not know that no he didn't buy them with his money he said that he had a friend who would who would purchase you know who would put up the money I mean it was it wasn't his do you know who owns the New Britain Press, uh, New Britain Herald, and the Bristol Press? No, that's one of the curious things about this. Is you that really don't know the answer, and you were working there all that time. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, but we didn't worry about it because it wasn't any. You know, there's no reason somebody would be buying it for political influence in New Britain. Yeah. And so. So it's owned by something called like Central Communications or Central right. Connecticut Communications. Central Connecticut Communications. But you don't. Nobody knows what that is either. I mean, like what, where the money is in that. 
No, not really. It's really interesting. I had actually one part of that. That one had slipped by me. Jay, did you have any questions specifically about this whole? Uh, okay, so this story appears in, in the Bristol Press, you know, and the New Britain Herald. Its byline uh, is uh, is Edward Clark, and who we now know doesn't doesn't exist. Do you have questions for Steve Collins, who who resigned over this? Yeah, go ahead. Well, my first question is: When Michael Schroeder, your boss, appears as a figure in this newspaper drama in Las Vegas. What did people think in your newsroom? <laughs> yeah, I was going to ask you a similar question, which is, did people in the newsroom know that out in Las Vegas, he, uh, he's the face of this new owner, at least for a week? I really can't speak for anyone else. I, I, I don't think that any, well, maybe somebody knew he was out there, but I don't think anyone knew this was going on. I, I know that me personally, that when I saw his name as being out there, I thought, that can't be our Michael Schroeder. That makes no sense at all. And then I saw a picture of him on Twitter, and my jaw dropped. I couldn't believe it. <laughs> but there he was. <laughs> and so you in the newsroom, or you can only speak for yourself, but working there in the newsroom and being a reporter, were people aware of any connection between Sheldon Adelson and Michael Schroeder prior to the explosion of this whole story? No, uh, nobody had a clue. All right, that's very interesting. Jay, is there anything else you want to know? Well, what happened? Did people ask their boss, like, what's going on? Did did was there any sort of meeting? Was there any movement within the newsroom to get an answer? Or did everyone kind of keep their heads down and go about their business? And you're talking about when this was weird story with this weird byline appeared. Yeah, appeared. yeah, no, what, yeah what happened in the newsroom? When Schroeder's role in Las Vegas was revealed, what, well, did the newsroom react? Um, okay, I guess I have to preface this with our newsrooms are very small. <laughs> so at yeah. any given time, there's not very many people there. Um, but no, I mean, there's a buzz. Everybody's sort of asking, if, you know, if anybody knows anything. But nobody really knew anything. And I'm not sure, you know, mostly it was just keeping our heads down and doing our jobs. I mean, you know, that's that's the way you survive in journalism. <laughs> this is true. Well, um, l- let me ask you this. Explain why why you resigned. You resigned publicly. You got on Facebook and, and uh, in some other sites and basically said that in good conscience you didn't feel you could work there anymore. Why is that? Well, and one of the things I do is I, I – run this uh, nonprofit for young journalists, Youth Journalism International. And so in that, we teach young, we teach students all over the world about what it means to be a journalist and about ethics. And I woke up on Christmas Eve, and I just, that morning, I just knew that I couldn't, in good conscience, continue to work for a man that I knew was just throwing everything that, everything that we stand for into the wind. And, you know, how do I teach kids how to do something and then not live up to what I'm telling them? So I get out. We should say that uh, a couple of things. We another. It does take more than four minutes to explain this, Jay. So a couple of things that I've left out uh, so far is that this article, this 1900-word article that appeared under the byline of Edward Clarkin, a person who does not exist, uh, but who appears to be Michael Schroeder. Who is Michael Schroeder? I'm pretty comfortable saying. I don't think. I don't think that's going to turn out to be not true. Um, it had a couple of problems with it. One of them was that there seemed to be some pretty widespread widespread use of material from other sources. We sometimes call that plagiarism. Um, uh, this was spotted by Holly Hacker of the Dallas Morning News. And then Matt Kaufman from The Current, I think, found 11 instances of text that was borrowed from other sources. Matt Kaufman also found that there were at least two people who were quoted prominently in the story didn't remember talking to anyone named Edward Clarkin, didn't remember being interviewed by anybody from the uh, Bristol Press or New Britain Herald, and didn't remember saying the things that they said in the story. So, Jay, one of the, that's another thing that we've kind of left out, that there were journalists would regard this story as very, very problematic. Oh, yeah. And that re- 
uncovers another thing that's that's so fascinating about this drama and important to me is there's there's kind of an interlocking press culture that unites people working in local newspapers like Steve and in Las Vegas with people in the national press or, or national newspapers like the New York Times or or the Dallas Morning News or you know bigger papers that have access to more resources and the 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 story as it became known through the press was so fascinating to journalists but also outrageous to them that the journalism world is now investigating <laughs> these events that might have remained kind of in their own sphere without the tremendous publicity that was given to them. So now you have journalists all over the country who kind of identify with the people in Las Vegas and Connecticut and are doing what they can to bring light to the story. And in that press culture, I think it's fair to say that Steve is a hero because nobody knows what they're going to do when they're confronted with a situation like that. People have mortgages. They have kids in college. They have lives that can't be easily disrupted. But for somebody to quit like that over a matter of journalistic principle is is extremely important act, and it also it affects everybody in journalism. Everybody in journalism kind of gets a, a a recharge of their First Amendment batteries from an action like that. So I think we should underline that since we have Steve on the show. You know, um, Jay, and this is something we're going to talk about a little bit more in the final segment, but you're not going to be uh, with us anymore because you have to go, so I'm going to ask you now. So, you know, Steve said an interesting thing, which is this is how you survive in journalism these days. I mean, you, you, you know, you put your head down, you do your job as best you can. Um, and, and I think one of the tripwires that has been kicked by this and that's occasioned the kind of, you know, almost sort of crowdsourced effort among uh, professional journalists to try to figure this story out better is that it's part of a wave. And it's a wave of both, you know, dispiriting things and maybe even mildly encouraging things. And this is part of what uh, Ken Doctor, who I think is the person who crunched the numbers and figured out that maybe three times the worth of Las Vegas Review Journal is what was actually paid for it, but he calls it the de-chaining of American newspapers. So they're they're looking for new ownership models. Suddenly you've got Jeff Bezos uh, buying the Washington Post, Jeff Bezos of Amazon. You've got John Henry, the owner of the Boston Red Sox, buying the Boston Globe. Uh, You've got the uh, Glenn Taylor, the owner of the Minnesota Timberwolves, buying the Star Tribune. Uh, You've got uh, Alice Rogoff buying the Anchorage uh, Daily Press, I think it's called. So you've got these new owners, and sometimes there are these kind of billionaires who who can do this, either sometimes for business reasons, sometimes for altruistic or, or civic reasons, sometimes some kind of fusion of the two. But but it does also seem, with Adelson, obviously, as though he may have his own very specific reasons for wanting to own the biggest newspaper in the state where he does business. Um, but there's also that kind of sense, right, that there's there's a new wave of ownership coming in, and we have to figure out how to deal with it. Yeah, that's true. Um, the old family companies uh, are mostly given up now. Um, the chains that uh, had run a lot of newspapers around the country are in a weakened condition. Um, uh, the hedge funds have come in and bought a lot of these distressed properties, and they're doing what hedge funds do, which is generally extra- take costs out 
and wait for a moment to sell uh, high after they bought low. And then you have this fourth category, which is billionaires and millionaires, some of whom can be good for newspapers because they can absorb losses, they can they can provide runway or investment the way Jeff Bezos is doing for the Washington Post. Um, but some may have nefarious purposes in mind. Now, there's nothing inherently bad about a rich person buying a newspaper. That's gone on for a long time. What you look for is, does this new owner understand the importance of the independence of the newsroom from his or her own wealth and power? And on that score, the Adelson family has done almost everything wrong that you can do. Uh, and and created absolutely no confidence in their ownership whatsoever. And when you tell people, just do your work and don't worry about who owns you, that's the kind of thing that's almost an invitation to journalists to do their jobs. And that's why everybody in the press is watching this story around the country. All right, we're going to grab a break. We'll come back. We'll have a little bit more of Jay. Mike Green from uh, Las Vegas is going to join us as well. Uh, Steve Collins is with me the whole way here today. We'd love to get your questions and comments, especially in the final uh, segment. The number is 860-275-7266. I'll give that out a few more times today. You may also tweet at us, at WNPR Colin. Funny Wall Street never has complained. Ah, but publishers have worries, for publishers must go to working folks for readers and to big shots for their dough. Now publishers are such interesting people. It could be prostitution, I don't know. Ting-a-ling-a-ling, circulation, ting-a-ling-a-ling, advertising, get those readers, get that payoff. All right, so we're back. We're trying to tell you this very complicated story that some of which takes place uh, in uh, New Britain and Bristol, Connecticut, some of which takes place in Nevada. Some of it, believe it or not, takes place in Macau. We probably won't get too much into that, but in fact, uh, this trial involving wrongful termination or a complaint of wrongful termination against Sheldon Adelson in Las Vegas Sands is uh, in some respects, the fulcrum for the article that appeared in New Britain. So think about this. Some allegations about what was happening in Macau, in Macau uh, wound up uh, being the cause of it, or at least being the subject of at least one-fourth of this massive article that sort of popped up uh, in New Britain and Bristol uh, in their rather small daily papers. Um, uh, so, um, and once again, just to sort of set this up a little bit, uh, Steve Collins is here in studio with me and who has uh, resigned from the Bristol Press in protest. Are you 100% confident that uh, Edward Clarkin, the guy who wrote this story, highly critical of the judge in Sheldon Adelson's case, uh, that this byline is in fact that of the publisher, Michael Schroeder? No, I'm not 100% positive that he wrote it, but he definitely is the one who put it in the paper. Mm-hmm. All right, so so we wouldn't know who, who exactly wrote it. No. But, but if Edward Clarkin is anybody, he's Michael Schroeder. I should say I have a little <laughs> bit of con- confirmation from within the paper right now that, that uh, Michael Schroeder and uh, – from a source within the paper that Michael Schroeder and Edward Clarkin are indeed one and the same. Anyway, we'll, we'll be coming back to this. Steve is going to be with me in the final segment. That's where we'll be taking some of your calls and questions too. I want to go out to the Las Vegas uh, part of this too. Uh, before we go to Mike Green, Jay Rosen, I know one of the things that intrigues you is that sort of in the face of the onslaught that you described in the preceding segment, this kind of onslaught of interest from from reporters at newspapers all over the country. Um, one of the responses for, to the to this from the new ownership out in Las Vegas is to hire a spin doctor. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> this part really cracks me up. They, uh, the Edison forces hired uh, this guy Mark Fabiani, who's a lawyer and a fix 
lecturer and uh, specialist in what is called crisis communications. Um, he's worked for Clinton, Lance Armstrong, uh, San Diego Chargers, I believe. Um, he's an operator, and I think the reason they hired him is because reporters in Washington and New York you know, may know this guy, and he's sort of um, on terms with them where, where he can talk to them. So in, today, in yesterday's or today's paper in the New York Times, uh, today's story in the New York Times about this whole story that you summarized for us, there's a, there's a section where they, they ask him about the Nevada judge and um, sort of were, were the Adelson uh, family interests involved in this investigation. And uh, Fabiani, the fixer, doesn't return their calls. Mm. And I just found that so funny. The guy is probably making hundreds of thousands of dollars from Adelson for this job. And uh, his solution is to just stiff the reporters, you know. And uh, to me, it's so hilarious because I could do that. Like, I'm pretty good at not returning phone calls. So I I, I could be a crisis management expert, you know. It's just like there's so many elements like that where – it's it's impossible to figure out what they're trying to do. Whatever it is, it's not working. But on the other hand, it doesn't really matter because if you've got billions of dollars, you don't really care. But if you don't care, then why are you hiring Mike Fabi- Mark Fabiani in the first place? And it, and this, it just keeps going round and round like a circus. And if it weren't for the fact that people's livelihoods are involved and free press principles are involved, this thing would be a, a, a hilarious farce. Right. Uh, I'm still capable of finding some humor in it. Uh, Jay Rosen, thank you so much for joining us today. We're going to go over to uh, Michael Green now. Michael Green, as I said before, is a uh, professor at the University of uh, Nevada, Las Vegas, and he specializes in the history of Nevada and Las Vegas. Um, Welcome to our conversation. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So um, maybe we could just say a little bit about the profile of Sheldon Adelson in um, Las Vegas, Nevada, Las Vegas and Nevada. He's I mean, this is not a guy who's really kind of – he doesn't give a lot of interviews, but he's a pretty public figure, right? Oh, he's very much a public figure. I mean, he owns a major resort casino corporation. He's been very active with the Jewish community. He's given a lot of money. There's a school named for him that he and other members of the Jewish community have helped build. He also originally came here owning a computer convention and from there bought – the convention center at the Sands Hotel, then bought the Sands Hotel, tore it down, built the Venetian and the Palazzo. And and he's been influential in terms of building luxury properties and promoting the convention business. He's a significant historical figure around here, and uh, depending on your point of view, uh, wildly popular or widely reviled. And you, when the news of the new of the new purchase, uh, the most recent purchase of the Las Vegas Review Journal broke, and that was sort of on or about December tenth, and it took about a week to kind of pin down the fact that it really was the Adelsons. Um, did did it, did people sort of know anyway? Was it sort of an open secret? I mean, or, or did, were people think, saying around Las Vegas, "Well, got to be the Adelsons"? Pretty much that uh, at the Review Journal, one of the people who's been there forever turned to another reporter and said, "Sheldon." Yeah, And, uh, I mean, I looked at it and thought, on a business level, it doesn't make sense. He paid well above the value, well above what the previous owner had paid. On a political level, uh, my antenna went up because he is well known for giving a lot of money to candidates who may not have that good a chance. 
if you go back to 2012, he essentially endowed the Newt Gingrich campaign. And I don't think many people thought Newt Gingrich had much of a chance to be the Republican nominee, but Sheldon liked him, and he stuck with him. And he certainly has a desire for political influence and power, which doesn't make him that different from other billionaires, but uh, he certainly has found a way to exert some influence. Right. We should say that uh, in 2012, he told, I think it was Forbes magazine, that he was prepared to spend anywhere between 10 and $100 million on the political future uh, of Newt Gingrich to get him to be president. When you look at it that way, I mean, that may have been a boast because he didn't really spend $100 million, I don't think. Not on that. And not on uh, Gingrich, but yeah. altogether, he certainly got into uh, the middle two figures, I believe, oh, yeah. trying no, to elect Republicans. No, actually, was, a lot of estimates are that he spent in that cycle at least $93 million on conservative candidates, and that's not counting any dark money he might have spent. But when you look at it that way, $140 million for a newspaper, maybe he just likes long shots, Newt Gingrich uh, newspapers. We should say that Las Vegas, it's, it's, he was a two-newspaper town. There was the Las Vegas Sun that was owned by the also very influential Greenspun family. Um, the two newspapers are under what's called a JOA, a joint operating agreement now. I think the Las Vegas Sun is somehow or other delivered with the Review Journal. Do I have that right? Yes, it is. Uh, it's a section in the paper and has, in the last few days, done a report on the Clarkin business. And they did their own extensive research and found some information. And they have a marvelous editorial cartoonist, Mike Smith, uh, who did a cartoon where you see Sheldon sitting there complaining about something and wanting to sue and somebody saying, well, can you sue yourself? <laughs> All right. Well, I like that. Um, and, and so, you know, as you look at this as a historian, one of the questions I think you're going to have um, is how is, in fact, the how malleable is the coverage that's done by the Las Vegas Review Journal? Um, and what does it cover that Sheldon Adelson cares about? Now, we've already talked about one thing. It covers it'll cover politics to a certain degree. The Adelson family have even said that one of their reasons for their initial secrecy about the sale was it was heading right into the debate that was being held in Las Vegas, and they thought they didn't want it to become a separate story. That, that could be spin. That could be true. But the other thing is gaming, right? This is a newspaper that writes a lot about the gaming industry. They're in Las Vegas. If they were in Florence, they'd write a lot about the fountain industry. Uh, so, um, so, so I would assume that's sort of a thing that you watch to see if it changes. Oh, very much so. And uh, the RJ has, in recent years, been very down the middle in terms of its gaming coverage. Uh, for a long time here, uh, the newspapers did not cover the industry in great depth. Uh, which is understandable if you think about the fact that this was the largest advertiser. Uh, there was a need for caution. Uh, the RJ has been better about this in recent years. But uh, they did an editorial talking about the differences between the paper's positions and the new owner's positions. And one of them has been online gaming. Uh, he is ardently against it. The Review Journal has not felt that way. Well, that's the editorial page. Mm -hmm. And then the important question is, does the editorial page shape the news columns? And there are newspapers where there's a separation of church and state, the RJ in recent years has been in good shape in terms of keeping its editorial views out of its gaming coverage. I cannot say the same for its political coverage, but the gaming coverage certainly. So it will be interesting to watch this and how does the Review Journal now cover this, and also who will be covering it. They have a couple of people who have covered the industry for quite a while, and they are unlikely to uh, go along with the program, so to speak. 
We should say that Sheldon Adelson has uh, sued a couple of reporters in Las Vegas in the past, including John L. Smith, who's a columnist uh, with the Review Journal. Um, uh, I think there was another reporter who's now deceased who, who got sued a couple of times by Adelson. And so now you have that also. Uh, Mike Green is kind of a jumpy situation where uh, Sheldon Adelson is now more or less the owner of a newspaper where he sued one of the columnists, not for something that appeared in the newspaper, but something that appeared in a book. Uh, but John L. Smith has claimed anyway that he was essentially forced into to bankruptcy by the lawsuit. Well, he was, and uh, he has written an account of this, and you can find it online. He did not rehash the whole thing recently, but he has done a pair of columns, first about the purchase, then about the mysterious Mr. Clarkin, and uh, made it quite clear that uh, he does not take well to what's going on in terms of the uh, Clarkin story about the judges. And in terms of Sheldon, his response was, well, here is his history. Let's see what he does. Uh, I would not be surprised if Smith is pretty sure of what is, he's going to do. Right. Um, we should say that one of the more sort of uh, bizarre touches in, in the John L. Smith story, John L. Smith says that at one point his daughter was very sick with brain cancer, that it metastasized into her spine, and that Adelson offered to create a $200,000 medical and education fund for her if uh, Smith would sign uh, some kind of public apology and recantation of this small passage in a book he'd written about the casino industry, and he refused to, refused to do it, saying it was onerous and untrue. Yes, and ultimately Smith did not end up losing that suit. Right. Uh, and that's important to remember, too. Um, the, uh, Sheldon does not have a history of winning uh, when it comes to those kinds of lawsuits. No, but if, when you can, if you can sue somebody and you have deep pockets, you can make oh, them yeah. pretty, pretty, put them under a lot of stress while you're suing them. No All right. Kidding. Mike Green, I know you have to go. Thanks so much for your time today. We're going to take a quick break. We'll come back with more of Steve Collins. We may have a little bit of time to talk to somebody from the Las Vegas Review-Journal, James Wright, as well. Dear Mr. Newspaper Man, do you read what you write? Today's show was produced by Edward Clarkin and Spunky South, which is the secret name of Lydia Brown and me, Kyone Wolf. Greg Hill tweets for us at WNPR Colin, and our intern is Amanda Gallagher. The part of Bill Curry was played by Wayne Newton. For show pages, articles, and the porn star names of Robin Young and Jeremy Hobson, go to our website, wnpr.org slash calling. On tomorrow's show is the sharing economy swamping traditional capitalism. And now, back to Colin. I think Jeremy Hobson is a porn star name. But anyway, Steve Collins is here with me right now. Uh, we're still uh, kind of parsing this very complicated story involving the Las Vegas uh, Daily Newspaper, uh, the Daily Newspapers in Bristol and New Britain, uh, a case in Macau, uh, and lots of other uh, complicated threads besides. So, Steve, in, in res- we should say also, our show on the sharing economy tomorrow kind of bleeds into uh, where you are right now. One of the things you've done is start a, a GoFundMe site, which is, I assume that's to support, your, you want to continue to be a journalist. You resigned in protest from the Bristol Press and the New Britain Herald. Uh, what do you want to do now? Well, I'd like to remain a journalist. Um but I'd also like to have a job that paid a decent salary and had good benefits, and so maybe those two things are not compatible. <laughs> we'll see. Um, you also received a uh, $5,000 award from the I.F. Stone uh, Foundation. This is a, a fairly new, a brand new award. You're the first recipient of this whistleblower award? Yeah, apparently. Um, I learned about it on Christmas Day. It blew me away. 
<laughs> nice gift. Yeah, and do, is there anything more you can say about that? I mean, do, do they explain to you why you're getting this prize? Well, um, yeah, the son of I.F. Stone, um, Jeremy Stone, had seen what I wrote on Facebook about, about resigning and um, decided on the spot that he was going to create this award and and give it to me because he was so um, he he wanted to reward the idea of people fighting f- to keep an independent and free press. Um, well, let's talk about this for a second, and we may be talking to James Wright from the Las Vegas paper in just a second. But mm-hmm. Steve, um, so look, there's no real sort of rule book in the world about how journalism has to work. But instead, there are these kind of latent understandings that we all have, and they evolve over time. Uh, sometimes they evolve in ways that we would prefer them not to evolve, but just kind of out of necessity. So when I went into the newspaper business, which was a long time before you, mm-hmm. I mean, there was this kind of understanding that, I mean, just to go back to something that Jay Rosen and Michael, Mike Green were talking about, that the editorial page, where the editorials and opinion were uh, are written, was, was one thing, that it was kind of walled off from everything, ideally. Usually in the old days, editorial pages don't even uh, interact. There's a firewall between them and the newsroom so that the top-ranking editor in the newsroom cannot influence editorials. That's kind of fallen down a little bit. And then there were supposedly firewalls between the business side of the newspaper uh, and the editorial content of the paper, what the newsroom does. And and it's that latter firewall, if I understand you. Obviously, you're cons- you don't want to work for a newspaper where the publisher – we assume it was the publisher, uh, makes up a fake byline and puts a news uh, story in that contains all kinds of things that, that violate basic tenets of journalism. But it seems to me the larger concern for you is that fundamental firewall. Can the business side of the newspaper influence content that's created by the newsroom? Can it kill a story? Can it create a story that wouldn't have otherwise existed? Well, it's kind of both of those things. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's it is a strange new world that we're living in, and, and, and we don't know where it's all going. And there are a lot of alarming trends, and this sort of highlighted several of them in, in ways that are very disturbing. And um, I, I just felt like it was my role in this. The best thing I could do was to stand up and say, hell no, we're just not going to do this, and leave. Um, we should say that as we go along here, this will be your chance to ask us, uh, qu- call in and ask us some questions. You can tweet at us at WNPR. Colin, our number here is 860-275-7266. 860-275-7266. So um, Steve Collins, as uh, you're, I think, beginning to grasp, resigned from his job at the Bristol Press because, in fact, this story appeared uh, under what appeared to be a false byline. Uh, it involved business courts. Um, it was not the kind of story that is typically published in the Bristol Press or the New Britain Herald, which are very small dailies that are centered on covering their immediate uh, communities. Um, and about a quarter of the story uh, seemed to be kind of a takedown uh, of a judge out in Las Vegas. Uh, her name is Elizabeth Gonzalez. She is, as I said before, involved in a wrongful termination trial in which Sheldon Adelson has been called as a witness and is basically the object of the complaint. Uh, the two of them had clashed uh, rather unusually in court, the judge uh, and Sheldon Adelson as witness. Um, so that story bleeds in a very complicated way over into the story that we've also been talking about today, and that is the sale uh, of the Las Vegas Review-Journal um, to initially an entity whose principles were not identified, and then over the course of about a week this month, um, those uh, those owners were fleshed out a little bit more. It turns out to be the Adelson family. Uh, and, uh, and and Sheldon Adelson himself, the point man, the guy who was the name and face of this 
uh, sale at the beginning when nobody knew any other names was Michael Schroeder, the same guy here in, uh, in New Britain who wrote, who may have written that story that ran under the Edward Clark. And, I mean, I feel like I'm trying to recite the plot of a Dickens novel. It's so hard to get all this stuff. Anyway, joining us is James Wright. Uh, he's the deputy, deputy editor f- uh, for local news and business news for the Las Vegas Review Journal. If you think I'm having a hard time explaining this, uh, imagine that you're trying to get your reporters to write this story while a sword of Damocles hangs over them. Uh, they're actually covering a story that, in a way that maybe the new owners don't even want it covered. So, James Wright, first of all, welcome to the show. And second of all, maybe you can talk about that challenge. What did the Las Vegas Review-Journal staff do starting around December 10th when it realized that they had a new owner, but they didn't really know who the new owner was? Well, first of all, thanks for having me on the show and sure. appreciate the, the invitation. Uh, you mentioned uh, a Dickens novel. I, I, we think of it more like a Stephen's King, Stephen King novel. <laughs> okay. Um, the uh, it, it's really been pretty hectic here since December 10th. Uh, normally, this time of year is pretty slow for newspapers, but we've got just more news all the time. Uh, the announcement on the 10th um, took a lot of people by surprise. Uh, it, I think really it was a very closely held secret. And then to be told, don't worry about who the new owners are, that you don't keep a secret by telling, you know, about 60 journalists, don't look at something. Mm-hmm. Um, it, was, it was inevitable that it would come out. I don't know why it was handled the way it was. Um, clearly, they weren't thinking of much, frankly. Um, it was handled about as, as badly as it could be. And it just uh, put a challenge out to our staff that, that we needed to find these things out, and we did. And, um, uh, you know, it, it's, it's a tough situation. The power of the press goes to he who owns the press. We know that. And if the owner doesn't want something in the paper, um, then it, it's likely not going to make it in the paper. In this case, uh, we're dealing with a fractured sort of situation where we've got um, uh, the prior owner, Gatehouse Media, remains in place as a management company managing the newspaper. Um, and, you know, at a time when we're separating from them uh, in terms of ownership, but still dealing with them in terms of production and things like that, and all of the vagaries that go with that. Uh, from, from day to day, we're not exactly sure who's in charge or who really is, is pulling the strings. Right. So there's a, um, a couple of things that have happened. One of them is that there have been statements made by ownership um, saying, well, no, there is going to be a firewall. You don't have to worry. Businesses, the business side is not going to meddle in the newsroom side. We'll hire a reader representative, um, all that kind of stuff. Um, on the other hand, the way that I understand it, uh, James Wright, from the very beginning, your, cover, your ability to cover the sale, uh, the purchase of the newspaper, the way you wanted to seemed a little bit compromised. And the original story that went up actually got changed I think I even read somewhere that you had to replate uh, one edition of the newspaper that was attempting to cover this. Yeah, that's true. Um, and it, it, what people should remember is that the at, at any news organization, whether it's television, newspaper, or magazine, whatever, the owner has the last word on what's written about them. Um, and that's typically been the case here as, as it is everywhere. The publisher would get a copy of the story, and if he wanted to tweak it in some way, then that would be done. Um, that was done in this case in the more traditional sense, and then at the last minute, without consulting anyone in the newsroom, other major changes were made um, by the former owner, Gatehouse, at whose behest we don't know, um, through the production system, 
which they have the ability to do because all of our um, um, actual production is done, the page design and things like that, in um, um, Austin, Texas, at a, at a central design hub. So there, changes were made there uh, at the last minute with no one in the newsroom knowing about them. Um, and uh, things have happened since then, changes to stories uh, without consulting with people in the newsroom. And in fact, we're kind of toying with the idea of having, uh, well, we, we, we always will have a disclaimer on, the, uh, on any stories that directly have to do with Sheldon Adelson. By the way, that's how it's pronounced, Adelson. Oh, okay. And um, uh, any of his companies that we know of. But, you know, we're kind of toying with the idea of having a disclaimer that says, uh, you know, this story may be edited uh, without consultation of the author or um, newsroom management, because that's what's been happening. Right. So, I mean, one of the complications, I mean, this whole thing, this Stephen King slash Dickens novel is so complicated that one hates to introduce a new element to it. But really, some of those of us who are following the story, some of us are starting to swing over to looking at Gatehouse. So Gatehouse was your old corporate division, essentially. I mean, they were sort of corporate management. And there's still essentially going to be corporate management uh, working for the new kind of Adelson-backed ownership. And that seems to be also the place that this curious assignment originated, right? This idea of fly-specking these three judges, uh, one of whom was Elizabeth Gonzalez, seemed to come out of Gatehouse, which is, as we say, that was sort of the old management, and in a way, it's going to be the new hired management, too. Well, yeah, um, I've heard that. Um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, We've been told all kinds of things. Um, I don't know what's going to stick at this point. Um, The official version is that Gatehouse has a two-year management contract to provide um, uh, services for the paper, basically to operate for the Adelson family. Um, At the same time, um, I guess you can break that deal at any time that they want, and it's notable to us in that everyone who works here except the publisher of our newspaper is actually an employee of, of News Plus Media. LLC, um, and the publisher is an employee of Gatehouse Media. Hmm. So we don't know how all this is going to work, and I don't think he does or anybody really does at this point. It's just, it's sort of uncharted territory. Um, as far as reporting on all of this, um, you know, strings get pulled, but at this point we're often uh, unaware whether it's something that Gatehouse wants to do, whether it's something that the Adelson family wants to do, or whether it's... Um, somebody within this daisy chain of ownership and managers who may be taking it upon themselves to overreact to something that they think someone wants to do. It's uh, First of all, um, I've been there for a little of this kind of thing in the past. Many of us who work in journalism have. You guys are very brave. I hope uh, you're conveying to your reporters. Every time I read one of their stories, I think, whew, that was a scary story to write. So they've got guts and they're tough and... Uh, uh, please, uh, from many of us journalists here in Connecticut, say we're watching them and we're we're uh, proud of them as fellow professionals. I appreciate that. That that means a lot. And we've been getting a lot of those kind of props from literally around the world, um, and it's been amazing to me the the kind of response that we've seen, um, and, and that that really helps a lot. Um, we know we're doing uh, the right thing for our profession. Um, you know, we're not. Uh, there have been a lot of things said about, well, you know, maybe it's because of conservatives taking over the paper and you're all just a bunch of liberal reporters. Um, that's really not it at all. Um, the newspaper's already very conservative. Adelson has said that he doesn't really see much difference between 
his worldview and our current um, editorial page philosophy. The concern is the way the whole thing has been done and the kind of ham-handed way that, that everything has been handled in terms of editing without involvement of the staff and everything else. And then going forward, Mr. Adelson is um, somewhat well-known for being opposed to anything that um, doesn't fit his worldview. And we were wondering if that's going to be the same in the news uh, columns, and if that's the case, and I think you'll see a, a lot of openings here. All right. Uh, James Wright, thanks so much for uh, spending some time. I sense your life is busy and hectic these days. Thanks for the time. We've only got about a minute and a half left, um, uh, Steve Collins, and that's not long enough to really talk about this, but uh, we've got a Paul from Salem calling in saying, why resign as opposed to sort of staying there, trying to figure out what the situation is and seeing if there's some way that you can function as a force for good within the New Britain Herald, the Bristol Press? Um, you know, they're, they're, they don't have that many reporters. You're an experienced reporter. Was there any part of you that thought, maybe I can make this work somehow? Well, I've kind of been thinking that for years. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, in the end, you know, who do you appeal to when it's the guy who writes the checks, who, who's the one who's guilty of misconduct. I mean, there's no one to, there's nothing you can do. There's no one to, there's no one to change. He's there. He's not going anywhere. And and I can, there's nothing I can do to change that. Um, I was sort of wondering um, what he thinks. And we did ask Michael Schroeder. We asked all kinds of people to be on who haven't been on. But, um, what, you know, what does Michael Schroeder, the publisher uh, of the, the Bristol Press and the New Britain Herald, think? And my guess is he thinks, you know what, he's done a good job of saving this newspaper that was going to die, that he's a community booster. Edward Clarkin initially appeared as a restaurant reviewer who writes overwhelmingly positive uh, restaurant reviews of, uh, of, of local restaurants. Well, that makes the restaurants happy and maybe sends a few customers their way. I mean, I would assume he thinks he's just sort of one of the good guys, that he hasn't done anything uh, terrible at all. I suspect that that's true. He probably is reading some of these things where he's portrayed as the face of evil in American journalism and and is stunned. I mean, you know, I can't he, – he needs to consider what he's doing really and see why people say this about him. <laughs> All right, Steve Collins. Well, good luck. There's a GoFundMe site. Uh, check out Steve Collins on Facebook as well. Learn more of the story, and we'll be following his future as well. We'll be back tomorrow with a story about the sharing economy.